Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we've got a special treat. We have author, singer-songwriter Patricia Ricketts with us here today. Patricia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. We're glad to have you. And full disclaimer for the audience, I got to read an arc of Patricia's book, Speed of Dark. We'll get to it, but let's, we always go to the origin story. How did you get into this? Why did you choose to become a writer? I have been writing my whole life. Even when I was a young girl, I would chronicle the stories of my life and loves, which is hilarious, and they were very simple. I would write them, and they would be about a page long each, say, and I can remember sitting in the kitchen on a stool as my mother would be chopping carrots or stirring the gravy, and she would listen, and I could tell from the hunch in her back that she was interested. So I guess that was kind of my first entree into thinking about the need to write, I guess. It's a passion. And then I actually wrote my first novel during my three children's nap time when they were little. They slept overhead for two hours every day. And that's when I would go into my office and I wrote a first draft. It took me a year. And this is back in the day. However, it was pre-computer. So as a result, I just had hard copies of it. You know, I typed on a manual typewriter, which sounds like antediluvian technology, which it is. So I had maybe only three copies of it, and it got lost in one of the moves. But I felt that that taught me so much about getting an image down and getting a setting in place and finding the voice of a character and getting people to want to turn pages. So it all was not lost, even though it was lost. Did you do any sort of specific schooling for writing or this was just something at well, this point? Yes. Yeah. yes, I know. Indirectly and directly. I went to the University of Illinois here in the state, downstate, and I was a solid English lit major. My pipe dream was that when I graduated from college, I was going to matriculate to New York and get on with one of the publishing houses and become an editor. Well, that got kind of dashed and I eventually fell into teaching and because I was strongly versed in both the reading and writing and even grammatical constructs etc which is kind of has a bad name nowadays but oh well so I taught for years I taught advanced composition and advanced placement and what you do you're teaching kids to analyze and look at all the tenets of fictional and non-fictional writing so I was learning as I was teaching and informing my own writing, which I never quit doing. Right. It is true that teaching is the best kind of learning, for sure. Yes, absolutely. So I did retire from teaching, which I'm thrilled to do. I love my job, but I'm thrilled to be out of that kind of nine to five constraint within time and place regime. When the pandemic hit, I'd been working on another novel and I thought, well, we're sequestered. We're all harboring in our safe homes. Now is the time to finish this. So I did. And Speed of Dark, which had been my, let's say, my child for the previous four or five years, really got birthed. Just going back a second, when you said that as a child you were kind of always writing a journal or a diary, you actually were writing short stories. Well, I would write essays as I was taking coursework. I would write poetry a lot. I started writing songs. I wrote short stories, some of which got published. One of them took a third place in a Door County, Wisconsin. I guess it's a literary magazine called The Pulse. 
And so I was really kind of always writing. If I gave an assignment to my students, not every single time, but sometimes if it was an oral history or a memoir piece, I would do the same to see where the sticky wickets were and where they might have difficulty with it. So I was kind of writing along with my kids. Oh, very good. So you would sometimes take those and submit them to magazines or wherever. Well, I did, and I actually started doing that after I retired because I had the time to really go for the polish. It's one thing to draft. Drafting's great fun. It's like letting your children out to play in the backyard, so to speak, or the playground. But then to call them in and to clean them up, that's a different kind of energy. So once I retired, I really had that kind of energy to put into what it was that I was working on, and I netted some good results. Yeah, between... The novel that got lost and Speed of Dark, you didn't write any other novels in between? That, that was basically the career time was, was in between? That is correct, because between raising three children, having a full-time job as a teacher, taking coursework at night, I got two master's oh, degrees. Wow. The creative energy, if you put it into your lesson planning and even your assessing of the student work, is the same kind of creative energy that you would put into writing a novel. I found, I don't know if everyone's like this, I only had so much of that energy. And of course, my own personal children, they came first, cooking dinner, doing the laundry. And... Well, not to compare courses, but if you're teaching an English class, there's a good chance you have a lot of essays or something to read. That takes up a lot of time to look at those after school. So it's, it is true. it's a lot. It is, but it remained a passion. It seemed like I was continually working on something of my own writing, especially in the summers when I would have a little more downtime. But to do a novel, there's completely different skill sets, I would say, between writing a novel and writing even a short story. Some people say that writing a short story is more challenging because you are limited with words and space and so you've got to get it done. It, it's closer to poetry in terms of the distillation of each word and the expanse within a word, say. Whereas in a novel, you have a little more time and uh, space to spread your wings. But it takes a long time to set that out, which I didn't have back then. Right. I guess depending on where your skill set is stronger, sometimes it's easier to think of an idea that's going to be a full story than to think of something that like, oh no, I have to compact this. I can't have all the parts that I want in it because it's got to be resolved all in, this, in a shorter, between four to 10,000 words or something. So When you have to write shorter, they always say, write a long essay and then cut it by half. And there's a lot to be said to that. I think the discipline in expressing oneself in fewer words, that's the old T.H. White mantra where he would say something like, say what you have to say, the fewest words possible. And I think that's pretty sage. And it's hard to do. Yes. You can see that if you're trying to sound out an idea to someone, you haven't really said it before. And as you're trying to explain the idea to someone, you get tangled in your own words. The idea was so clear in your mind, but then when you try to give it over to someone, it just becomes like a big mess. That's kind of what you're doing when you might have a very clear idea for a story, but when you try to put it down on the page, all of a sudden you're like, how do I untangle all these words? It was so clear before. And then when you're trying to get it out, it's, wait a second, where did all these letters go? And there's a tendency, at least in me, I don't know if this is true for all writers, that you will express something one way and then you think I can do better than that kind of 
it's too redundant. And so the old, I think it's F. Scott Fitzgerald, murder your darlings. And so if you have that second time, you think I can say it better. Well, maybe is that that is the one that should prevail and be in the piece. Or maybe that's the one that goes because it's too cute by half. I actually know a writer who really does not like that advice. And he says, why would you murder your darlings? It's your best writing. Murder everything else. Right. Uh, well, if it works for him, he's published. He's out there. He's a New York Times bestseller. So each to their own. That is true. Just to follow up some questions on the origin story before we get into the book itself. We mentioned also that you're a singer-songwriter. Where did that come in? Since I was a young child, I played the piano. But the piano, as you well know, even a keyboard, they're not terribly portable. Our family has been immersed in music. We had a musical and a very artistic home growing up, family of origin. So I was envious of, I have four sisters and a brother, each of whom played either the guitar or banjo. I would watch them play and think, I want to do that. So I first, and it was again, as I retired, that was kind of a benchmark point of my life. I first, because I was too afraid of a full-size guitar, I got it myself a, uh, a ukulele. And I taught myself to play it. And then I thought, well, I don't want to play the twinkle, twinkle, little star and shine on harvest moon kind of stuff. So I started writing my own songs. Because I had the time and I had the energy and the passion. So then I gravitated to 7-8 size guitar and then I got a full size one. Now I have probably three and I'm looking at purchasing another one. Piano, as in like reading music, all that stuff, you did that as a child. But where you are now, that didn't happen until after you retired with moving to the string instruments. Well, right. I have been a person most of my life who's listened to classical music. I've listened to show tunes. I've listened to folk. I've listened to rock. I've never been really big on the rap scene, although some of it's brilliant because of the language. But my joy actually comes in making the music rather than listening to the music. So the way to do that when you have a guitar is to write your own songs. And because I'm strong with words and I'm comfortable with poetry, not necessarily that it has to rhyme, but most songs do in some place. So I just kind of delved into that, and I bet now I've written easily a hundred songs. Wow. Do you see similarities, and what sort of similarities do you see between writing music, writing the lyrics for music, and writing either short stories or novels? So it's kind of four different kinds of writing, so... Do you see some like crossover there or, or what? I do. I think, and I'm going to quote Flaubert who wrote Madame Bovary, and he could spend as much as a week on a single sentence. It wasn't necessarily for the sentiment that he wanted to get out, but for the cadence and the sound. So if you will, the tempo and not necessarily the rhyme, but the initial consonants or the flow of the sentence. Well, music, when you write a song, in the best songs, I believe, the words actually just flow into the music. It's almost like you would imagine, I can't imagine any other word being there with that lift in the line or that hard chord that you hold that note or whatever. So there is a lot of similarity because when I'm writing, especially if I'm doing a descriptive piece of a setting or being on the train, which occurs in Speed of Dark, I talk about the sounds of the train as it lurches and chirps as it goes over other switches and tracks, etc. And so that's very much like songwriting, I think. Right. This might be a little bit, I will say redundant or self-evident, but would you say that when you're reading writing that people would describe as lyrical, that's because you would think that either you're hearing or the author at the time was actually 
hearing the words in like a musical sense. And that's what makes the writing lyrical. I think so. And I think it brings in a layer of enjoyment for a reader that goes beyond plot and character. Right. I think some people really like it and some people it's not for them. But it seems like there's a difference between a lot of writers are adding words because it, the sense of it is right to them, kind of like a feeling to it. And some people are adding words because it sounds right to them. You could be doing both, which that would be ideal. But sometimes there's a stronger emphasis on why did you put this word there? You're like, don't you hear it in the sentence versus the exact meaning of it feels right within the sentence. And I agree with you that not everybody likes the lyrical in what they read. They are more plot driven. And I think that's perfectly fine. That comes into the editing for a writer in my mind is that you want to find that sweet spot between having that kind of lyricism and cadence and tempo and beauty of the language in there without it overshadowing, hey, I just want to hear a good story. Yeah, that's very true. Moving over now to Speed of Dark. Well, do you want to, in a few lines, tell the listeners what is Speed of Dark about? Speed of Dark is the real time that the book takes place in one day. It is a story of healing from grief, of race relations and of the ecology of the planet as told through the voices of three separate narrators. So the first one is this Mary M. Phillips who wakes up one morning, she has lost everything and she has decided this is going to be the last day of her life. The second voice who comes in is this Mosley Albright. He is a black man who happens to come to her back door through unusual circumstances. And they end up taking the train down to the city of Chicago together from this northern suburb. And things ensue. It's, a, it's really kind of an odyssey, if you will, of people that keep coming in. The third voice, however, his name is Michigami, and he's actually Lake Michigan. Each of them feels that they have some deep wound, some serious grief that they need to recover from. And of course, the Lake Michigan's one is being polluted and encroached. And he bemoans the fact that he might be losing his life, if you will. So they're, in a sense, on the same trajectory. And the climax takes place with all three of them together. A lot of the tale is told through the flashbacks of their various lives and we get to understand who they are. But it's a heck of a good story as they move through this single day and I'm not gonna tell you what happens at the end. But it's pretty dramatic. Yeah, I did not expect, well, I don't know what I expected. I mean, I saw the back of the book and then I didn't realize it was just gonna be the one day and it was, we're gonna live several lifetimes within this one day. That is much. And you basically do, especially because of the flashback, because we have to understand why they're where they are within this day. It really feels like you're living several lifetimes within a day. And maybe for a book, because it's so compact, it could feel more intense. But it's not that unusual, I would think, for day to day. People, we're always recalling memories. We're always thinking back. It's just not usually with such, we don't get to compact into books, so it doesn't seem like there's so much intensity to it. Yeah, actually there is, in terms of the compactness of the single day with the flashbacks, there is an epilogue that takes place three months later. It's key to the book. Like some epilogues you could just choose to read or not. This is important to read. I think it's pretty exciting. Just to ask a technical question and then we'll go over to more about the story. When you, you had the book done and you were ready to publish it, what steps did you take then? Did you try for a literary agent? Do you say, oh, I'm just going to keep creative control entirely? What was your thought process? I decided once I did finish the book and I had edited 
pretty well and use some of my friends who are also well-versed in the English language and are avid readers, that I was going to start looking for a publisher and or an agent. And I decided, you know what, I don't have too much time. I don't want to spend that much time looking for an agent, looking for a publishing house that would be willing to take a risk on a debut author. So I went ahead and I went with She Writes Press, with whom I've been really pleased. It's a hybrid publishing company, so there are money spent from the author to get it formatted and actually printed, etc. But it's within a doable budget, at least for me. And then I also hired a publicist. Now it's all that is kind of past, and now I'm immersed in doing book signings and readings. I did a book launch. I'm doing interviews and getting the book out there kind of on my own. So the process was one of time, and I'm happy with what I did. Great. And She Writes Press gives you an editor and cover designer, or they give you suggestions of people to look into? I could have chosen an editor, which I believe would have been an add-on fee, who someone who would have gone through the book for this, that, issues. But I thought because I'm pretty strong in that department, and so are my friends who agreed to read the drafting. And then what they do do, which is really wonderful, they will go through and they'll ask, are you finished with this draft? Look it over. This is as before the final printing. So I'd look it over and by golly, I would find a typo or a there, there, and there mistake. Just those nitpicky kind of things that if you just read it quickly, you might miss. So I think we did that round of do these approvals, try it again, try it again. I think it went through five times and that was not an extra cost. Although the burden I have to say was on me. Right. Well, it's funny how many times you can go through a book and still find mistakes. It always happens and it just the way it is. It is. Even when I'm reading a bestseller and I'll get a book, occasionally I'll see, I don't know, grammatically incorrect or a comma where a period should be, or, you know, just some little thing. And I think, oh, even the big publishing houses have mistakes. Right. They designed your cover. The image that they I think it really fits. That's what you yeah. want. You want it to portray. So just about the book itself, switching through the different voices, was this just kind of the way the story came to you? Or was as you're writing, you felt I need to be adding more perspectives here? I need to widen the story sort of thing. Well, there was an evolution. And the first character who came to me was this Mary M. Phillips, a 50-year-old white woman. I knew she had great loss and I knew there needed to be redemption from the guilt she felt and the the losses that she's experienced. Then this Mosley Albright, this black male came into it and I was crazy about him. So a little bit of history back here. My partner and I, Peter, we're blues photographers in the city of Chicago. So we have befriended many black men and women who are in that scene. And so mostly became an amalgamation, if you will, of some of the friendships, some of the people that I have known. So he came into this story. And then I don't know why I was inspired to bring in Lake Michigan as an actual character with a voice who speaks a little bit in French. He's quite the character, but he bemoans his losses too. And what I have found is when a writer writes in the voice of a non-human entity, you become very sympathetic to what either that tree or that lake or that plot of land has seen and is experiencing. So to sensitize my readers 
to the plight, you know, what we're doing to the ecologically to this planet, it became kind of a cause celeb, if you will. Was it difficult or was it kind of automatic writing these three distinctly different voices? The language of each, the rhythm of each, was that automatic or that was a concentrated effort? It's like being an actor. The hardest one for me to find, actually, the voice was Mary M because I'm much more gregarious. She's Shire and retiring and it is really so stung and sad when the book opens. So she was hard to find. But if I just crawl inside of her as you would if you were going to act on stage, my fingers could start to fly. And the same with Mosley. I could be him. And the same with Lake Michigan. One of the things, it was kind of a trick that I discovered with writing is Lake Michigan. I never, ever used a contraction because he sounds erudite. He sounds learned. He sounds a little bit otherworldly and a little lordly, if you will. Because I did that, that helped me. That was a quick trick that I used and it worked. It's so interesting. It's so simple and it's so effective somehow. I do have, I guess, a comment about the lake because on the one hand, it's the changes that have occurred and the way people regard me. And at the same time, there is a sense of, or that I got, either sort of arrogance or like vengefulness that comes from him. Whereas sometimes I have to take my toll. I just have to take someone. It's going to be mine or something. And you're like, why are you so mean? Stop taking people. Don't do that. I agree. Writing in the voice of the lake, it was inspired to do it and it sensitized me to the lake. And I love the lake, by the way. I've been swimming in Lake Michigan my whole life, and it's huge. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but friends who have come from California who had never been here before to Chicago, when they look out at Lake Michigan, they say, this has got to be an ocean. It's that big. You can't see to the other side. You can't see to the, the ends. As a matter of fact, they call Chicago the third coast. This may be a spoiler kind of question. It's maybe partial spoiler, but you do mention when we're in the, the lake's perspective or voice chapters something about a boat that goes down a lot of passengers aboard is this sinking something you partially put together is this based on fact did you go looking for it is so did you go looking for it or this is something that when you live in the area everyone knows about this sinking I don't know that everyone knows about the sinking of the ship, the Eastland, but it is a tragedy. And I did a lot of research, actually, on Lake Michigan. In looking up, I wanted to know about the pollutants that were in there. And some are down to aircraft, some are shipwrecked ships over the years. And then, of course, I, I guess I, you could say I stumbled onto that. So that's another form, if you will, of human negligence, because it was brought about because it happened right after the Titanic, maybe two or three years later. So all ships had to have lifeboats on top, but this ship was built with its um, bail windows way too low on the waterline. So it became very top heavy and with all these people on it and they were rushing from one side to the other, it basically just flipped the boat, capsized it. And it was a terrible tragedy. I believe the number is something like 785 people lost their lives that day. That's enormous. But truthfully, before I had done the research, I did not know about it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I don't think it's common knowledge if if you live here. But after people read it, I think they'll be interested to find out about it. I think we also forget that back in the day, this happened, these sinkings. I don't want to say it was so common, but it wasn't necessarily an uncommon thing for a ship to get lost, for something to go down and taking a lot of people with it. That's Exactly. It's, well, there was a little bit of a, a clever turn of phrase that you put in. When you said something about a titanic sinking that occurred. And I was like, oh, very well done. I saw that. 
Yeah, and the best laid plans put in a law, a rule for a boat that ended up with these terribly unfortunate consequences is so ironic. But the people who owned the shipping line and actually this ship, they were well aware of the top heaviness of this boat. And they proceeded to rent it out anyway. So I guess it just points out sometimes greed overtakes care of humanity and certainly of the planet. Those kinds of stories are just so frustrating. Like the plane that never should have taken off, the ship that never should have sailed, especially when everyone knew about it. It's just very frustrating. Yeah. Yes, I hear you. And I agree with you. We also have Miriam goes into the city. Is she going into Chicago? I don't remember now. What city is she going into? She is going from Northbrook, which is a suburb, and taking the Metra line, which is the train, and going into the city of Chicago, right in the heart of downtown. And so some of the iconic buildings that are in there, I mean, people who live in the city who read the book just say, oh, it's so much fun because I knew the buildings you were talking about and even the street and the L, the elevated train that goes around in the loop downtown. She goes into the Art Institute of Chicago, which is a holy mecca of art, if you will. The climax of the book actually takes place at the Shed Aquarium. That's also extremely iconic. As a matter of fact, its roots go back to the Columbian Exposition in 1893. So it's at the museum campus, and she takes the bus to get there from the Art Institute. So it's part of her odyssey. As people come in and go out and influence her and whatever, it impacts the end of the book. Right. So you also have a few different characters that kind of pop up. Are these characters you thought of, or are they kind of amalgamations of people you've seen in the city over the years? Well, you're right with the amalgamation, but amalgamization, I guess you'd say. Anyway, but the one that just tickles me no end is a character. She's a little Italian crone. Her name is Nona Concetta. She kind of was inspiration. Things pop in, kind of like a dream, if you will. So she's there. And a little further on into the book, she came back in. It was almost like I had to look over my shoulder at her (laughs) and say, what? What are you doing back? And then I said, all right, you're in. She's kind of like the comic relief in a way, you know, a number of times. But I'm crazy about her too. There's a strong thread in the novel about having faith, having faith that things will turn out okay, having faith in the goodness of your fellow man. This Nona Conchetta is is a prime example of harboring or holding that belief. Well, it seems like Mosley is like that also, that he's determined that things will be good with people. Yes, he is definitely like that. Yeah, well, good. Very good. So we always wrap up with a question of, I really like it when, and then using some sort of storytelling something, writers, editors, publishers, stories, covers, books, stores, librarians, choosing one, whatever. I really like it when, and I really don't like when. So how would you feel going for that? I really like it when I request a bookstore that they say, sure, let's do a book reading signing. And so far, I've been lucky with that. And when I have requested a bookstore, if they will order and have my book on their shelf and they they agree to that, I mean, this is just wonderful. It's the maple syrup kind of love. And even better, and this is the next thing that I'm going to be doing, every place that I have a book signing, I'm going to ask them to have a display of Speed of Dark books so that it's captured by the people who walk into the bookstore. That's really what I like. About a publisher, what I really like, and I've liked this about She Writes Press. 
They respond quickly, they respond positively, and they really have been very helpful. What more can you ask for than to have someone have your back and to be in easy communication with you? So I really like that about bookstores and my publisher. But what I really don't like is for someone to ignore a request. I can come up with all kinds of reasons why they may not have time for me. Maybe they're way too busy, they're overbooked, or whatever, but to not respond is the most challenging. So to circumvent that, what I have really found myself doing is to actually go into the bookstores. And rather than just do an email, they probably get way too many. So I guess being ignored would be the worst thing. I think a lot of people agree with it. And it's interesting you said that, that you found to go into the bookstore. I once spoke to Erin Rivera, who's from Frugal Forget, so we'll just give her a shout out. She's on one of these episodes from way back. And she said that when people want to contact her about her book, it's always better when they just come into the store. Because, and also with the emails, and there's just a lot going on. So when you're there, you're in front of her, she can see you. She could see your book then, and it usually works out better. Exactly. And I do a little sneaky trick. I have cards made up, and I, I went ahead and made it on pretty nice, hard cardstock, if you will, rather than this flimsier ones. And every time I'm in a bookstore, I leave two or three kind of fanned out. I just leave them around. I'm kind of shameless that way. And also, you're saying you go into a bookstore. You're going to independent bookstores specifically? Yes. I have tried to go to the Barnes & Noble near us. It seems that there's no one on staff who actually orders the books. So I've found that a difficult connection to make. The chain bookstores are trickier because they have contracts with publishers, whatever. And they're not necessarily looking to expand that to smaller presses or whatever. But when you walk in and you ask about a book signing, just from your experience, is there some sort of, I don't want to say indication or some sort of implication that... If I come for a book signing, I'm going to bring at least 10 people with me, blah, blah, blah. Or just, oh, sure, we'd love to have a local author. I usually ask whoever is the person on the other side of the cash register that I'm interested in having a book signing. And very often I have seen that they have my book on the shelf, but just a single copy. So I tell them, well, it's there. And then what has happened most recently, if I'm not in walking distance, say, of the indie bookstore, they give me the email address of the person who books the book signings. So then I contact there and I have been fairly successful with that. And I've tried to spread them out in terms of both mileage so that they're at least five, maybe more like seven miles from each other so that they're not pulling on the same audience, so to speak, or, or customer. And then also spread them out in time. I'm going to be doing one in Evanston, which is the home of Northwestern University. And I don't want to have that one until after the university students are back on campus because that's a huge influx of people who read. Right. Yeah, good point. And you usually do read something from your book. How do you choose what you're going to read? Well, I read a little bit from each voice. And so that takes some editing and some thought ahead because you know how when you read a novel, there's a lot of exposition. You kind of like slowly sometimes roll into it. Or even if you start with a bang, the bang doesn't tell the character necessarily, the big event. So I've been pretty judicious in doing that when I had my book launch and I had about a hundred people at the book launch which was awesome and I did a reading that probably all three voices together took about 20 minutes say that might be too long for a bookstore so I think what I'll do is I will pare that down a little bit so that I don't lose my audience 
Yeah, 20 minutes is a while. It's a little long. I think I should get closer to maybe 10 to 12 minutes. Yeah. Have you specifically focused, like, we can only take from the beginning of the book because they don't want something to come up? Or it's just, you know, let me find parts that I feel flow together. Well, it is from the beginning of the book, but it's not necessarily from page one to page 12, so to speak. I grabbed portions of Mosley, actually. He, as a young man, has a near-death experience, and I use that because it explains why he's got this gift of understanding the sorrows and the joys just looking at people's eyes. And so I chose that for him. Miriam, I did choose from the first chapter. And I did choose also from, I cherry-picked from two chapters of Michigami, Lake Michigan. It's all pretty much from this first 40 pages, say. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Trisha, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for being a guest today. It was fun to speak with you. You are delightful, Esther. (laughs) And I can tell you're very well-versed in the writing of fiction or books yourself. And it's been delightful talking with you. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring author, singer-songwriter Patricia Ricketts. To find out more about Patricia and her work, please visit the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word podcast and to keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word podcast. But please check us out at eltenabam.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.